Now, friends, the preaching task can be a very fickle thing, at least from my experience. I don't know, depending on the text that kind of sits before me week to week, the putting together of the sermon can be a drastically different experience. So there are some weeks in which you get the assigned text or topic and you open the Word of God and it is as if in that first read that the heavens open up and the golden light shines down, the angels are singing, there are angels descending and ascending upon the ladders of heaven, and there's a dove that descends with one of its own quills dipped in heavenly ink. You simply take the quill and write down the sermon on gold-plated paper. And all you have to do then is carry this sermon to the community to whom you are speaking. And it is as if this sermon is so nuanced, it's so rich, it speaks so timely to the community. And this happens about every one in 100 sermons. Then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's those weeks in which you open the text and it's as if you're reading a foreign language and you kind of put together this sermon with duct tape and glue and you've got this thing on the top that you've glued on that you're not even sure is biblical, but you're going to use it anyway. You've got this thing on the bottom, like these illustrations that don't quite fit, but they might get a laugh or two. And then all in the middle is just kind of word salad, kind of some points that are arranged in your head. And you, because you are paid to go before the community and preach, you have to bring this thing. And so you stand with all the confidence that you can muster and you offer it as you're offering. And ironically enough, there's those weeks in which you give this kind of a sermon, at least you feel that it's this way. And that's the week that like 20 people get saved and 44 filled with the Holy Ghost. I mean, it's just weird how the preaching task <laughs> works. But I, I pray to God that this sermon is not on that end of the spectrum. If it is, please don't tell me. That would hurt my feelings. And there's everywhere in between, but I find some of the most difficult sermons to be those that are on the most familiar texts in Scripture. Because if the Word of God, the preached Word of God, is meant to kind of uh, enliven the audience, it's meant to inspire them, it's meant to uh, relieve burdens or convict or judge, whatever the sermon's supposed to do, it's supposed to do something active. But when we reach familiar places, you automatically tune me out before we even start because you've heard it before. It's just like a child that's heard their parents' commands hundreds of times or their stories hundreds of times. The second they start, their ears close. And so it's hard to kind of bring familiar texts to, to shed fresh light on them. And so that's kind of where we're at this morning. Now, the past five weeks have been really interesting stuff. We've talked about love God, which is a common idea, but we've talked about it in really creative ways, what it means to love God with our mind or what it means to love God with our strength or what it means to love ourselves. last week. These are really interesting concepts we don't always talk about. But here we are this morning. Today is about love your neighbor. Now friends, if you've been in church for two weeks, you know love your neighbor. And if you've been in church since you were a child, you've heard hundreds of sermons that may not be on this text specifically, but that reference this text. Heavens, if you went to kindergarten, you know love your neighbor. If you've, if you've grown up in the South, Southern hospitality alone will tell you to love your neighbor. So it's a very difficult task to kind of, what are, what are we going to talk about? I mean, it's, always, it's already self-evident in so many ways. I mean, think, we know what love our neighbor looks like. We know it looks like visiting someone in the hospital or writing them a letter. We know it looks like um, helping around the house with the chores. We know it looks like uh, holding the, the door for the lady that's entering the building behind. We know what love our neighbor looks like. It's so intuitive. It's so natural. Of course, it doesn't always happen. Obedience and knowledge don't always follow one another. Can I get an amen in the room? But then, on the other hand, while that's so straightforward, on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's this ambiguity or complexity to the idea of love your neighbor. Those three words, there's a lot of questions behind them, isn't there? So, yeah, I get it. I'm supposed to be nice to the cashier. That makes sense to me. But what about when love gets a bit more demanding? What about when loving my neighbor requires that I get out the checkbook 
how far is love supposed to go then to help somebody in their time of need? What about when love of my neighbor is meant to um, engage someone in my life who's making really unwise choices that are hurting themselves? At what point does love turn from compassion and sympathy into tough love and rebuke? Where's that line? And where do I cross it? What about when, who is my neighbor, right? That's what the lawyer asked Jesus in Luke 10. Who is my neighbor? When I see suffering on the television at night from all across the world, is that my neighbor? And if so, what am I called to do? Am I called to give? Am I called to pray? Am I called to go? What, maybe all three, maybe not. Who knows? Probably just pray. But it's, it's always confusing, not always, but sometimes confusing as to what love your neighbor concretely looks like. Now, this morning, of course, we can't address all those questions. Were we too, we'd be here for weeks, and I don't want to be here for weeks. So instead, we're going to get at this question of love our neighbor through three, we're going to get at the question of uh, loving our neighbor through three specific questions. Those questions being, first, why do I love my neighbor? Second, who is my neighbor? And third, what does it look like to love my neighbor? And it's my prayer this morning that as we begin to look at this, that we might discover that loving our neighbor is not just this rote command that kind of bears heavy upon us, but is instead an art. That it's less like something that is robotic and more like something that's creative, artistic, that's more like something of a song. That's my prayer this morning that we might begin to see loving our neighbor as a command to be fully present in the space that we inhabit, no matter what that space looks like, so that we might attend to the needs that are looking back at us and the individuals that we encounter every given moment of our lives. So we're in Mark chapter 12 this morning. If you have your Bibles or your telephones, telephones, cell phones, you have your nice big old telephone with you from the house. All right, uh, Mark 12 is where we are. We're going to start in verse 28. And I know this is old school, but can we stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? This is a gospel reading. It's tradition that many churches stand for these kinds of things. This is what the text says. Oh, before we read the text, it's important to understand that just prior to this story, Jesus has been debating and debating and debating with the Pharisees all throughout chapter 12 about all these very specific, minute details of the law. So he's gotten in all these, the, the Pharisees are trying to trap him in a certain answer so that uh, his stupidity, if you will, or his blasphemy is exposed. And of course, Jesus, being the wise person that he is, always dodges it. And here, this chapter that we're, this verse we're about to read is the only positive interaction that Jesus has with a scribe of the law in the Gospel of Mark, and the very last one in which he will address a question of the law. This is what the text says. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You may be seated. So, briefly, before we get into the three questions, I think it's interesting to see here that this is, again, the only positive interaction that Jesus has with the scribe in the entire gospel. And why is it positive? Well, because everybody else has been so concerned with the details of things, where Jesus lands on these particular issues. And finally, someone asks him, what's the main thing, Jesus? 
If I wanted to kind of get a grasp of where's God's heartbeat, where did I, where did I find it? And Jesus rewards that question. You see, I think there's kind of a mini-sermon here that oftentimes we get bogged down in the details. We have little litmus tests for where people stand on little minor issues in the Christian faith. And Jesus rewards those who take the bird's eye view and say, well, what are the main things? Well, the main things are loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, quoting Deuteronomy 6, and loving your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19.18. Now, Jesus, when he quotes Leviticus 19.18, this is a common tradition of his day that if people wanted to know how to obey God's law, they would ask the rabbis, what's the, I can't memorize all the law of the Old Testament, so how then do I kind of understand it in a very general way, and many rabbis would respond by saying, well, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is showing himself to be a very wise teacher. Now, if we were to kind of unpack this command, love your neighbor as yourself, there's kind of three things that we want to know. The first is, why do I love my neighbor? Well, quite simply because they are created in the image of God. Now, we don't need a why, right? But we want a why. Like a child and a parent, we want to know why mom and dad ask us to do things, but we don't need that answer. Of course, if Jesus tells us to do something, we simply say yes. We don't, need to, we don't need to respond by saying, well, why, Jesus? Can you break that down for me? How does this really work out in my life? But the grace of God has given us a why, not necessarily here in this command specifically, but all the way back in Genesis 1. If we go all the way back to the beginning of the story, this beautiful poem, Genesis 1, a beautiful poem about the creation of the world. And here it all begins with this chaos mess of a massive world, and God is hovering over the waters, the chaotic waters, with his presence. And then, in the midst of this mass, God speaks order, and the poem flows very orderly, right? It flows with a great rhythm to it. It says, with every day it ends with, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. There's a rhythm to it, which shows us that there's a rhythm to God's created order. There's music embedded in the cosmos. There at the very beginning is a symphony of God's created order. So it shows us the rhythm of the poetry itself shows us the rhythm of God's world. It's infused with a beauty that we can't quite understand, that we can't quite grasp in a lifetime. So it begins with that, but it ends in day six, as we most of us know, the creation of humanity. And God, after he creates the animals, this is what he says in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man or humankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this is really important that the idea of this image of God thing has been debated for centuries and centuries and centuries. It's a very rich image that has been expounded upon in a variety of ways. But I want to look at two specific aspects of it, especially in light of Israel's neighbors. So the time of Israel, Israel had two main superpowers in which it was sandwiched between. To their east was the Mesopotamian kingdoms of Assyria and Babylon. And to their west was the great kingdom of Egypt. I remember, everybody remembers Egypt from elementary school probably. But both of these places talk about image of God. And I'm not gonna, we're not going to get bogged down here for like more than two minutes, I promise. So just put your history caps on for just a minute. I want to show you, in both of these places, the image of God was reserved exclusively for kings. The kings were those who were made in the image of God to exercise God's authority over the kingdom and to rule justly. Just to give you an example of this, we have texts that talk about it. So just here's an example from Mesopotamia at the top. 
A free man is the shadow of God. The slave is as the shadow of a free man. But the king, he is like unto the very image of God. That's a proverb about a 7th century king, Asarhaddon, in Assyria. Now in Egypt, on the other end, you are my beloved son. This is a God speaking to the king. Who came forth from my members, my image whom I have put on earth. I have given to you to rule the earth in peace. So here it is, kings. Kings are those invested with God's authority. Now the unique position of the Bible, this little tiny nation of Israel that is writing and preserving this text, they say that what has been exclusively reserved for kings is now democratized, is now universalized, such that all human beings, merely by the fact that they are human, have now been invested with royal authority from God, that all of them have been given this, they are ambassadors of God's rulership, that uh, exercise God's authority over the created order. Now, this is very significant because being created in the image of God is not just a beautiful thing that we kind of reveal God's character in some ways, but it also means that no matter what person that we encounter, no matter if we know them or not, no matter what labels we give them, in the eyes of God, they are royalty. In the eyes of God, they carry a natural authority about them merely by the fact that God has blessed them by making them human. How does that change things? That it's not just those in high authority that deserve my respect, but it's every human being that I encounter. It is as if I stand before a king or a queen. That changes the way we see the world, doesn't it? No matter what labels I put on them, good, bad, indifferent, their first label is king. Their first label is queen. Their first label is royalty. And so when we disrespect certain people, we're not just disrespecting people God loves, we're disrespecting royalty. That changes things. It changes the way that we see those around us. What if we begin to see people that we encounter, no matter who it is or whether I know them or not, as royalty? Also, so we talked about this kind of royal image. On the other hand, the image of God suggests that if we are all bearers of this image, then we, then we are all revealers of God's character. No matter how marred this becomes, that each of us conveys something specific about God's character, God's presence, such that when I encounter an individual, there's something in them that I can learn of God, even within a five-second conversation, even with just meeting their glance, there's something of God in them to be discovered. Such that those that we neglect, those that we ignore, those that we shut out and say, yeah, God's not a part of that, then we are ignoring essentially a, a, a chance to know the God whom we adore. See, what we learn in loving our neighbor is not simply that we're being obedient or that we get, that we get more friends, for example. But in, when learning to love our neighbor, we are learning to find God in places that we haven't discovered him before. You want to get to know God better than get to know strangers because God is found in their face. What if to so all these people we shut out, we're essentially saying, God, I only like this face of you. I don't like this face of you. What if we started pursuing that face of God? We're going to discover God in the face of every neighbor whom we encounter. So this image of God idea gets at the royalty and the revelation of God. James 3 um, really gets at this quite sternly. Starting in verse 7, the apostle is talking about the power of the tongue, and this is what he said. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is, then he says this, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. It's tough. He says, out of the same mouth flow, flow both praise and cursing. He says, my brothers, this should not be. And he gives this example. He says, 
Can a can both fresh water and bitter water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, neither can a bitter spring produce fresh water. What he's saying to us is that we can talk all we want about praising God, but if we're refusing to acknowledge God in our neighbor, and if we're talking bad about that image, it almost negates the praise that we've given God. That's powerful, right? So there's something about loving God. My, the true, my true love for God is tested in whether or not I can love anybody that stands before me. So we, in, in every neighbor, we encounter royalty. In every neighbor, we encounter God's revelation. And in every neighbor, our true worship of God is tested. So maybe we could summarize the point this way. The call to love my neighbor is a call to reaffirm in word and deed what God has already decreed, that they bear the royalty and revelation of God. The primary litmus test of our worship is not the sincerity of our piety, but our care for those we don't deem useful to our ends. Every, every person that we encounter that doesn't have an immediate use to us, are we willing to love them? Because in them we see God's face. That's powerful. It's convicting. It's the power of God's word. Okay, so if that's um, why do I love my neighbor, then who is my neighbor? Well, the answer, again, is quite simple. It's any individual who crosses my path. And this is where I want to get into, we're going to milk the three words, love your neighbor, for all that they're worth. We're going to get everything we can. Ready? This is going to be painstaking, okay? So it begins, love your neighbor. It begins with love in the Greek, agapesis, which is a second singular verb. Now, when you read the New Testament and you read commands, especially in the letters of Paul or the other apostles, when you read commands, it's a lot of you plural commands. It's a lot of, so if it's a Southern Bible, it would say y'all instead of you, right? It would say y'all need to do this. Y'all bear one another's burdens. Y'all love one another. But here, and especially in the Old Testament, a lot of commands are second person singular. So it's as if in this command, Jesus, of course, when, when, when it says y'all in the Bible, it means you individually, but this one's targeted at you. That means it's not targeted at the person sitting next to you. It's not targeted at the person who sits behind you. It's not targeted at the person in your head who you think would hear a sermon about loving their neighbor better so that they would treat you nicer. It's not targeted at them. It's targeted at you. It's as if in this command, Jesus captures your gaze, captures your eyes, and he says, I've called you to love. I haven't called, I've called, I haven't called them. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about what they do. I've called you to love. I don't care if they don't love you. They're not my kids, right? That's like good parents. I don't care what they do. I don't care what Susie does. I don't care what your parents let her do. You're my kid. I've called you to love. Don't worry about what they're doing. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. You. I've got your gaze. You are called to love. So I've got pace. It's love. It's individualistic. It's targeted at you. Second, I told you we're going to milk this. Your. <laughs> your. It's again, you singular, which implies that the love is targeted to those who are uniquely a part of our kind of community, the, the, those who are, who are uniquely in our sphere of influence. That is, your neighbors don't look like my neighbors. I have my own little set of neighbors, not just physical neighbors, but people I encounter on a regular basis. We each have a unique set of neighbors, and Jesus says, I've called you to love them because nobody else has the makeup of neighbors that you do. Your specific group of people, your specific sphere of influence, I've called you to love them. So we've got love targeted individually. We've got your targeted at your little specific social group. And here's where it gets really interesting. So the word neighbor, it's the word placeion in Greek. Now, hear me. Neighbor is a great translation, but there's something about the word neighbor to me that feels like 1950s suburban ideal ethics, that feels a little like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, 
that feels a little bit like corny Publix commercials where like some guy's wearing an American flag t-shirt and they're all like smiling at each other and shaking hands. There's something about it that feels kind of like stock photos from 1990s health textbooks where everybody's kind of like on the playground cheesing it with a neighbor is kind of, it's kind of corny. It's kind of cheesy. It's, it's, I don't know. The word is a great translation, but there's something uh, inherently cheesy as I've said about it. But so what does it literally mean? Well, the word placeion in Greek, first and foremost, it was first of all a preposition before it was a noun, and it just meant beside, next to. It meant the person that physically stands next to you. That there's something in the word neighbor that suggests that love, when it's best practice, is practiced in physical concrete space, and it's anyone who stands before me. You know, we live in a world in which we can increasingly select our community. You know, I've got my CrossFit group, we all like lift heavy things together in really annoying ways. And then I've got, I've got my mountain biking group and I've got my book club and I've got my life group, my small group at church, which I visited like three others and they were all kind of weird. So I finally ended up at this one. Don't act so pious. I have a life group too. I know the way these things go. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this. This is what God, I mean, it's, it's great that we have people that we're naturally attracted to as friends or whatever. We, have, we choose our spouse for the most part we don't choose our kids or our parents, but we choose our spouse, and that's, that's nice. But we, we kind of, that's nice. And then on, even on social media, we, we associate with those whom we want to associate with, etc. So we have people that we kind of construct our little communities around us, and of course, we're called to love those people. But there's something about the command that says, that's great, you love those people, but first and foremost, you love your neighbor. That is, you love the one that stands before you at any given moment of the day. That is, there's all kinds of places that you inhabit throughout the day. You've got your workplace, you've got your home, you've got... Uh, Starbucks, you've got Taco Bell, if that's your thing, whatever, <laughs> wherever it is, like wh- whatever the place that you inhabit, Jesus says that person that stands before you is the one you love. Of course you love your family. That may be my wife in mom- one moment and it may be the cashier in the next, but it's always the person that stands before me. There's a givenness to loving my neighbor. That is, I, as, as the, great Wendell, uh, the great poet, activist, and farmer Wendell Berry says, he says, love your neighbors, not the ones you pick, but the ones you have. That there's people around you that you don't, I don't get to pick my neighbor. It's, they're just given to me. And, that, and the beauty is that God's placed me in this moment before this neighbor. And I can look them in the eye and I love them. And whether that's a simple interaction at a cash register or that's a long-term interaction with a best friend, all, everywhere in between, well, whoever stands before me is the one I'm called to love because they're royalty. Because they're the one that reveals God's heartbeat. To me. So that's the first thing. Loving my neighbor is, again, it's, it, it has to do with physical space. But then also, notice it's love your neighbor singular, isn't it? It's not love your neighbors. It's not love people. It's not love humankind. It's different. That's a plural. All those are plural ideas. Neighbor is singular, which, you know, if you think about the rhetoric of our culture, love the world, right? Love everybody. That's everywhere. That's kind of American pop culture. It's it's in Coca-Cola commercials. If we could just buy a Coke for everybody, then everyone would lay down their swords and frolic in the fields together. You know, it's all about this kind of, I'm going to love everybody. There's something sentimental and saccharine about that. And Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a former pastor in Christian memoir, she says, you know, in her book, Alter in the World, she says, it's a whole lot easier to love the world than it is to love particular individuals. You know what I mean? It's a whole lot easier to say, oh, I love everybody. You know, I just love, I love the world. But when you, when, you love, when you love the world, you automatically overlook individuals, don't you? It's a whole lot harder to love the idiot that answers their cell phone in the middle of the movie, at the movie theater, 
like, that guy is my neighbor in this moment. I'm supposed to express some kind of, it's a whole lot easier to love everybody than it is to love the neighbor that decides to mow their lawn at 9.30 when I just put the baby down. I just got him to sleep, and you're going to mow the lawn with a headlamp on, right? That guy. Don't be that guy. It's a whole lot easier to love the world than it is to love that person that's exclusively negative about everything in their life. It's a whole lot easier to love the world, to love everybody, than it is to love that customer service representative whom English might not be their first language. I'm serious. And it's not their fault that they don't understand your DVR and why you broke it, right? (laughs) It's not their fault. But that's the neighbor that's been placed before me in that moment. And I'm called to love them. You see, about it's singular. It shows us that love, when it's best practiced, is oriented toward an individual. It's as if love says, you have my full attention. You, you, nobody else, standing before me, even if it's only 10 seconds or 10 hours, you have my full attention. I think about even time with my family. Even though it's my kids and my wife there, I'm giving them individual attention kind of one at a time, even, in, even if it's five-second increments, right? Judah, stop crawling on your sister. This, these kinds of things. Like, it, it's always individually oriented. Love is specific. It's never general. Love is always tailor-made to the needs that look at me in the face. Love is specific. So maybe we can kind of get it, we can summarize that point in this way. Christ's command shows us that a neighbor is not something we define, but someone we become. It's a call to attend to the person beside us. Sentimental emotion toward everyone is cowardice compared to the hard work of loving the one who stands before us. It's hard work to love people. It's hard work, but we as Christ followers are those who occupy the physical space in which we stand and we love. It doesn't matter who the face is, there's a face of God in it, and we love it accordingly. Okay, so if that's why I love my neighbor, who is my neighbor, then finally we ask, how do I love my neighbor? Well, we could list a hundred different things, scriptures filled with it, but I want to just say, first and foremost, it's with undivided attention and assistance. And it's here that I want to go to Mark chapter 7, so if you're already in Mark, go backwards a little bit. Because there is no better model of this specific kind of love than what's given us by Christ. This is what the text says. So Jesus um, is traveling. He's, just, he's coming from Syrophoenicia. He's coming from Tyre, which is up in the north. He's traveling southward. He's on his way somewhere. And this is what happens starting in verse 31 of Mark chapter 7. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. Now look at this. After he took him aside, away from the crowd. Look at that. Somebody brings Jesus their burden. This individual that's probably been labeled all kinds of different things. It's been labeled a burden by their family. That's been given all kinds of names. Jesus takes them aside and says, you're worthy of my full attention. I'm going to take you away from the crowds for a moment. We're going to go off by ourselves and show you that you've been overlooked your entire life, but I see you, and I see your need, and I'm willing to pay attention to you. You're worthy of all my affection. You're worthy of all my... I'm not going to heal you in front of a crowd for all the oohs and ahs. I'm going to heal you here outside by ourselves because this is what it's about. It's about me seeing you and seeing what God sees in you and healing you accordingly. And look what Jesus does. So he takes him aside. He's by himself, this very intimate encounter. Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. 
Now, wet willies are gross, y'all, <laughs> to experience and to give. But Jesus, totally comfortable with this, then he spit and touched the man's tongue. So Jesus could easily have just said, bless you, couldn't he? He could have just said, be healed. Jesus can do anything. But notice how involved Jesus gets in the needs of the person before him. He could have blessed them in any given way. He could have just said, move along and you'll be healed. No, I'm going to get all up in your issues. <laughs> I'm going to heal you. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm willing to get into the mess with you. It's an intimate encounter. It's a focused, tailor-made kind. Of, where, is, where are you hurting? You're hurting in your ears and your tongue. That's exactly where I'm going to meet your needs. See, love is tailor-made. It's specific. It's willing to get into the issues with people. And we understand that as we get into complicated relationships, that individual takes a lot of our time, and that's okay. There's nothing that's disobedient about that. It's not that we're saying no to other people, but love is specific. And look how it ends. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, the drama of Jesus, a deep sigh, he says to the man, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Immediately following this, the, the crowds respond by saying, he does everything well. Ben, if you could come. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about Jesus as one who gives them their undivided attention. So what does that then look like for you? How is it then that we begin to practice loving our neighbor in a very specific and targeted way? How might we begin to look into our neighbor's eyes and instead of seeing all the labels that we heap upon them, we see the royalty of God. We see the revelation of God. How might we, how might we find those whom we're neglecting and affirm God's image in them? You know, it looks very specific it looks very targeted, as I've said. But there's various ways. We, we can listen to people. Listening is a lost art in our culture. True listening, active listening. I mean, I remember being in our small group a couple uh, weeks ago, and the night had ended. And again, these are the people I chose to do life with. I get that. But the night, the night had ended, and there's a guy in our small group named Kale. And he came up to me, and I'm in a PhD program right now. And he came up to me, and he asked me, how were your exams? Right? And people have asked me that, and it was very nice. But he, So I, I told him it was good, and I kind of gave him the general answer. Because many, many people, when they ask the question, they're like, just give me the two-second version. Right? I don't need, I don't really care. I'm just asking out of courtesy. So I gave him the general answer. And he started asking specific questions that were follow-up questions. And before I know it, he had been asking me questions about my program for 30 minutes and let me talk. And it was the most sincere expression of love that I felt in a long time from a friend. Somebody that was just willing to listen to me. And they were asking active, good follow-up questions, and he was just interested in my life. And it was so liberating for me because often as a pastor, especially, you just hear, you, you listen to stuff a lot. But then I, somebody let me talk. What if we began to listen to people? That's a great act of love. What if we began to be helpful to people? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his work, The Life Together, which he's a great 20th century theologian and pastor. His, this book is about community, Christian community. He talks about, you know, if somebody comes to us and ask us with help with something when, they're, when we're in the middle of something and we get annoyed with them and we get really short with them, he's saying that probably means that we're taking ourselves and our tasks a little too seriously because the image of God just walked in the room and asked us for help. And what better way to embody obedience than to reach out and to help them at that point of need? So it looks like listening. It looks like helpfulness. It looks like bearing one another. We know what this stuff looks like. And see, the call to obedience of loving our neighbor is not necessarily dramatic. Not a, ho not a whole lot of Hollywood movies 
are about the person that faithfully loves their family and their neighbors their whole life. There's not a lot of drama there, but the beauty of obedience is that it shows us that as we begin to say yes to God's command to love whoever stands before me in a given moment, that we find that this mundane life that we, that we think is just filled with boring, routine, and wrote kind of robotic actions instead is infused with the presence of God. See, when we begin to love our neighbors, we begin to discover the adventure and purpose of God's presence in every encounter that we face. So who's going to cross your path today? Love them. They're worthy of your attention. They're worthy of your affection. They're worthy of your devotion. They're not somebody that's there to serve you. They're first and foremost a king or a queen, and we should treat them as such. Let's pray together. God, we would like to we would like to be able to craft our own communities of people that look like us, think like us, act like us, and we have. And we love them. It's easier to love them than it is to love other individuals. But we pray today, God, that you would open our eyes to see everyone you see. That we would feel the burden of your command upon us, a burden that's easy and light, but nevertheless a burden, that we might begin to be artists in the world that are fully present wherever we stand, willing to look in the eyes of anyone that stands before us and affirm what you already have called and blessed, that they are yours, that they are created in your image. God, give us your eyes, and then God, give us your patience, and may we, God, as we practice this beautiful art over and over again, every moment of every day, may we, may we become experts in this wonderful creative act that you've given us. Show us yourself in every person we find. And God, we ask that the response of the world might be that we do all things well. We follow you to find our neighbor. In Jesus' name.